For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order oh, 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 O'Reilly. are your wiper blades chattering skipping or squeaking don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility when it's time to replace your wiper blades stop by o'reilly auto parts and see our selection our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait stop by o'reilly auto parts today oh 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Deer seasons are winding down in many U.S. states, but if you're a member of the Griffith Island Club in Ontario, Canada, you still have a few more weeks to bag a deer. Thanks to Graham Green for sending this one in. In most of Ontario's wildlife management units, the whitetail season only lasts about 13 days and ends on November 20th. But the members of an exclusive hunting club on Griffith Island in the Georgian Bay enjoy a much, much longer season. Rather than beginning on November 7th, their season starts on October 1st and extends for 13 weeks. That's the longest season in the entire province, including in northern units that also have multi-week seasons. Now, it's not unusual for a state or a province to shorten or lengthen a hunting season to better manage a particular species. That's exactly what the province said when it proposed extending the Griffith Island deer season from 11 weeks to 13 weeks last year. But that wasn't the only rationale. Provincial officials also proposed extending the season to, quote, increase opportunity for clients and club members, which is a clear tip of the hat to managing wildlife in order to appease special interests. These club members could be defined as businessmen and politicians, which sets the stage for class warfare in the Ontarian hunter population. One local hunter told the online newspaper The Narwhal, which could be the coolest name for a newspaper ever, that there was a, quote, absolute absence of information during the rulemaking process. Mark Rickman of the Ontario Federation of Hunters and Anglers said their members are concerned that landowners are getting preferential hunting opportunities. Quote, ultimately, these are public wildlife resources managed on behalf of all Ontarians by the provincial government. So we don't want to see hunting become a pastime that only the wealthy can afford. 
Sounds like we have a lot in common on this side of the border. You might assume that an island ecosystem requires a higher degree of management to keep the deer population healthy. That could be the case, but the narwhal also points out that a neighboring island, called White Cloud Island, has only a six-day general whitetail season. On the province's online proposal to add two weeks to the season on Griffith, one comment is a complaint that the extended season doesn't apply on White Cloud, where landowners are not, quote, huge corporations, but private people who own land on a private island. Are wealthy and connected Griffith Island members getting special treatment from the government? Or is there a sound scientific reason the Griffith Island deer season is six times longer than the units surrounding it? If you live in Ontario, that's a question you may have for your member of parliament or your minister of natural resources. This week, we've got bears, bucks, and access, and so much more, but first I'm going to tell you about my week. And it was wild. A couple of buddies of mine, one of which is Brad Brooks, who's the owner of Argali, the company that makes knives, tents, game bags, trekking poles, stuff like that. I only bring that up so you can check out his buck. It's a beautiful buck. He also took a very nice picture of the beautiful buck on the uh, Argali Instagram page, if you're curious about that. All three of us on this adventure did get nice deer. We covered a lot of miles, straight backpacking hunt, found a lot of deer, but only a few bucks that looked old, which is what we were after. I ended up with 103 pounds of boned out meat on the scale when I got home. That's no rib meat because the rib meat was so full of fat that I just couldn't figure out how to get the meat out without having to pack out pounds and pounds of fat. So leaving all that fat in there made the Mountain Jays, Magpies, and Ravens very happy. There was a partial loss of neck meat from the driver's side due to trauma and no tenderloins or heart due to hungry guys at camp. That's a pretty serious yield. 103 pounds. She's so... Now, if you're into measuring deer the other way, the Boone and Crockett way, I think we averaged about 181 inches between the three of us. My buck was the smallest, Brad's buck the biggest, Charlie's buck right in the middle. But those numbers are not the highlights of the trip. I would say these numbers are. Brad's buck was shot at 50 yards, my buck was shot at 75 yards, and Charlie's at a whopping 130 yards. It's not because we can't shoot. I made a beautiful shot on a rock before leaving the trailhead at 368 yards just to make sure my scope was still on from antelope season. It was. Other memorable things include a windstorm that put a 90-degree bend in our titanium stovepipe. That storm also knocked down a conservative 20% of all standing dead timber, and a split zipper and a lost tent stake during that same storm filled the tent with sugary snow. I finally stuck my head out of my sleeping bag to see just barely the tops of my boots being visible in the snowdrift that once was my gear pile. We forfeited some hunting time in order to use a Leatherman tool to cut out the critically weakened section of stovepipe, then use that section as a clamp over the now two sections of stovepipe that were left in order for us to stay on the mountain. Spent a lot of time drying out gear that we dug out of that sugary snow, frozen water bottles, melted Nalgene bottles, and just a solid reminder of how cathartic a hot campfire can be on a cold night. We cooked tenderloins on the fire, hard on the fire, fried in buck fat, and we also found just how awesome it is to have a little bit of seasoning 
A little bit of alpine touch packed into the backcountry for just such an occasion. It was a heck of a hunt. Tremendous physical effort. Tremendous mental effort. We got remote and got comfortable in uncomfortable conditions. And we know we can do it again next year. Moving on to the corrections desk. Back in episode 183, I discussed a bill in California that's been having unintended consequences for the youth hunting and shooting sports. The bill prohibited any firearm industry member from marketing guns or gun accessories to minors. And not, you know, the dudes who work uh, digging coal out of a hillside. It ain't no trick to get rich quick. If you dig, dig, dig with a shovel or a pick. And a group of outdoor organizations filed a lawsuit challenging the legislation. The lawsuit is still ongoing, and the bill is still presenting some problems. But a listener from California wrote in with important context. In response to the outcry from sportsmen and youth shooting leagues, the state legislature passed another bill last year that reversed certain portions of the original bill. This new bill exempted marketing that promotes firearm safety programs, hunting safety programs, and shooting sports events. It also explicitly exempts promotions of lawful hunting activities, youth hunter programs, and outdoor camps. That's obviously good news, and California Waterfowl reports that it clears the way for hunting and shooting competitions to be advertised to youth. However, that doesn't mean the bill is perfect. The California Rifle and Pistol Association points out that while promoting youth hunting events is now legal, advertising firearms or related products at those events could still result in a $25,000 fine. So a trap club or youth hunting program in California might not be able to hang a sponsor's banner if that sponsor sells firearm-related products that, quote, reasonably appear attractive to minors. Coaches, trainers, and hunting mentors might also run afoul of the law if they do anything that promotes similar products to those under 18. And since the bill does not define what kind of speech is reasonably attractive to minors, California hunters and sport shooters are still understandably scratching their heads. Moving on to the crime desk. A canine agent, that's a dog, for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks busted a poacher this month by tracking down the rifle the poacher had stashed in the woods. Canine agent Apollo and his game warden were notified of a suspicious truck parked in front of a field entrance. The owner of the truck appeared to be hunting in the field without permission, but when Apollo arrived, the truck owner claimed to be scouting for waterfowl. However, it wasn't long before Apollo sniffed out a hunting rifle that had been placed in the woods away from the path. The truck owner is facing a variety of potential charges, including hunting without a license, criminal hunting, and interference with law enforcement. Now, the stashing of rifles in the woods is not a unique tactic for the poaching public. I've had several game wardens tell me that habitual poachers will pick up a series of very inexpensive firearms at local pawn shops. They'll stash their nice hunting rifle with nice optics and everything in the woods and only carry this uh, used and beat up bargain store weapon in and out of the woods in case they do get caught because the game warden's going to seize that inexpensive rifle instead of the good rifle. But can't get past Apollo on that nose. Good dog, Apollo. Up in Oregon, the state police are asking for the public's help identifying the persons or person responsible for killing two bears and leaving them to rot in the tops of trees. A dead bear with an arrow sticking out of it was found high in a tree in southwest Oregon earlier this month. When Jackson County firefighters got the animal down, investigators also discovered that the bear had been shot by at least two bullets. Another bear was found a few days later in another tree in the same area. 
That bear was too decomposed to identify a specific cause of death, but both bears are believed to have been killed by humans. It is illegal in Oregon to waste any edible portion of any big game animal or the pelt of any fur-bearing mammal. Oregonians who might have information about these animals should send an email to tip at osp.oregon.gov. If your tip leads to the conclusion of the investigation, Oregon's turn-in poacher program, TIP, offers a reward of four preference points for each bear. Cash rewards are also available. Speaking of waste, a father and two of his sons have been accused of taking only the trophy parts of an elk and a bear they killed back in September. Robert Schlitt and his two sons, Richard and David, were hunting near 11 Mile State Park when they killed a bull elk in the vicinity of another group of hunters. Those hunters found the elk and noticed that the Schlitz had only taken the head and left the rest of the meat to rot. Later, the Schlitz mentioned to this other group that they had also killed a bear in the area. The other group of hunters called Operation Game Thief to report the elk, and investigators later discovered that the Schlitzes had only harvested the head, hide, and paws from the bear. Robert Schlitt told local media that the story is all hearsay, and that he and his boys are, quote, ethical hunters. I'm sure you're thinking there's more to the story. Relax. We'll get you the exciting conclusion to this one in the next episode titled Wanton Waste, All Hearsay or All Horseshit. <laughs> in Pennsylvania, a man has been charged with homicide after an altercation over a hunting spot turned deadly. David Heathcote of Emlinton, Pennsylvania was hunting doves on a nearby farm when he heard someone yell out, There are no turkeys here. He ignored the advice, he was hunting doves after all, and fired five or six more shots before heading home. As he was walking up his driveway, another man named Robert Wingard drove past and yelled, you screwed up my archery hunt. Heathcote yelled something back, I'm not able to repeat on air, and Wingard turned his truck around and drove into Heathcote's driveway. Here's where things really start to get squirrely. Heathcote claims that the argument grew so heated that Wingard threatened to kill Heathcote's daughter and his dog. Then, he says, Wingard made an abrupt movement with his right hand inside the cab of the truck. Heathcote believed Wingard had a gun, so he raised his shotgun and shot Wingard in the head. Wingard was dead by the time police arrived. Heathcote has been charged with criminal homicide and is being held without bail. This probably won't come as a surprise, but this isn't the first time these two have interacted. Meat Eater spoke with Wingard's ex-wife, and she says they've been fighting over this same hunting spot for the last decade. In his statement to police, Heathcote also mentioned that he's had trouble with Wingard, quote, for years. This is a sad conclusion to a hunting spot feud. There's a lot to learn here as we all get frustrated when we see that other truck at a trailhead or pull out. But is an altercation like this worth a couple of doves, or a limit of doves, or a big old buck? Something tells me that both of these boys would have wished they would have found some other hunting spots. Finally, I have an update for you on a case we covered all the way back in episode 132. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources launched a big investigation last year into a butcher called A&E Processing. The facility was accused of selling venison from poached deer and stealing venison from hunters. 14 people connected to the poaching ring were charged with 122 crimes, ranging from illegal sale of wild animal parts, to money laundering, to telecommunications fraud, to hunting with illegal equipment. 
The individuals charged included people who worked at the facility and poachers who supplied the facility with meat. Those people were sentenced this week to pay a combined $70,000 in fines and restitution, and they've had their hunting licenses suspended for a combined 63 years. That honestly seems a little light to me. This outfit stole over 2,000 pounds of venison from 280 customers, not to mention all the deer the poachers stole from the general public. I'm no lawyer, but it seems like theft on that scale usually lands people in jail. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the public lands desk. The corner crossing debate is getting all the attention these days. But did you know there's another controversial but should be legal way to access a landlocked piece of public land? Section lines are 66-foot-wide strips of land that divide states into a checkerboard of square-mile sections. These lines were drawn by surveyors in settlement days, and some states consider them public roads. In North Dakota, for example, 
the relevant law reads, quote, in all townships in this state, the congressional section lines are considered public roads open for public travel. That seems clear enough when you write it on a piece of paper, but it gets a little more complicated where, you know, the rubber hits the dirt. Some section lines have actual dirt roads splitting two fence lines, one on the right and one on the left. However, other lines have not been made into roads, and sometimes the terrain is too rough for roads or fences. As you can imagine, this has caused its fair share of controversy. In South Dakota, for example, Jacob Heyer at South Dakota Searchlight reports that some hunters have been bullied and harassed by landowners who don't want them accessing public land via those section lines. It's illegal to construct fences or barriers along these lines, but that's exactly what some public land hunters have found. However, the law also allows local township supervisors or county commissioners to vacate section lines. This gives the landowner permission to control those roadways and block access if they so choose. In South Dakota, the state is suing Elms Springs Township for vacating all the section lines on an 11,000-acre ranch. There is landlocked public property on that ranch, and the state argues that the township had no right to close all the section lines to public travel. And the state may have a point. Section lines are usually closed one at a time for very specific reasons. What's more, state law prohibits local governments from vacating a section line if it provides access to public lands greater than 40 acres. The public property in question is greater than 40 acres, and that case is currently being litigated in South Dakota courts. Some South Dakota hunters would like to see the state step in and formalize the section lines with signage and markers. This would help prevent landowners from illegally blocking those roadways, but it would also ensure public land users don't wander off onto private property. When landowners explain why they want to limit access, they usually cite fears of the general public trespassing and destroying property. Sometimes that's just an excuse, as when a landowner is enjoying exclusive access to public hunting ground. But other times, those folks have had legitimately bad experiences with public land users, and they don't want to deal with those conflicts. I don't blame them. Marking section lines with clear signage would keep both sides accountable, while also giving the public access to the land that's rightfully theirs. But, then again, if you hunt roadsides in South Dakota, I bet you have a few unmarked stretches that you would prefer to remain incognito. Moving on to the conservation desk. A legendary high school football coach in South Carolina has sold his 774-acre quail preserve to a conservation group called Quail Forever. The move ensures that the public will have an opportunity to hunt what has been one of the best private game preserves in the state. In 1989, Hurricane Hugo took down a bunch of trees on Mooney Players' property. The aptly named football coach decided to turn the estate into a quail paradise. He and his friends have hunted the property in Sumter County for the last 30 years, but now he's sold it to Quail Forever for a reported $1.5 million. That's less than $2,000 per acre, which for the area is a pretty darn good deal. The preserve will be known as the Bob White Hills Wildlife Area and will be managed by the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources to protect and grow the Bob White quail population. Public hunting is expected to start in the 2023 through 24 season. Another popular game bird got a big boost recently when the National Wild Turkey Federation signed an agreement with the USDA's Forest Service for a first-of-its-kind 
$50 million stewardship program. The money is an initial investment from the recent infrastructure bill and will be used to address the wildfire crisis in the West and promote healthy forests across the U.S. Over the next 20 years, the National Wild Turkey Federation, or NWTF, will develop and implement regional projects to protect communities, reduce wildfire risk, and improve forest health, wildlife habitat, and water quality on national forests and grasslands. This is the largest agreement in the Wild Turkey Federation's 50-year history and one of the largest ever between the Forest Service and a conservation organization. Co-NWTF CEO Kurt Dyroff said about the agreement, Wild turkeys, as well as other wildlife, rely on healthy habitats and healthy forests for their long-term sustainability. Likewise, hunters rely on the same for a quality and successful hunting experience. This partnership enables us to make greater investments at a greater scale to keep forests healthy, water clean, and stop critical habitat loss. NWTF is primarily focused on turkeys, but the habitat work they'll do will benefit a host of other species. For example, good turkey grassland habitat is also good habitat for pollinators. Monarch butterflies love milkweed, but so do a bunch of other insects that feed off its nectar. Turkey poults, or baby turkeys, eat insects almost exclusively for the first two months of their lives. A grassland habitat with lots of milkweed and other herbaceous plants will support pollinators as well as turkeys. So when the Turkey Federation embarks on a grasslands management project, as they're doing in Pennsylvania right now, they're creating spaces for all kinds of native plants and animal species to thrive. Moving on to the energy desk. You may have noticed in my interview with BLM Director Tracy Stone Manning in episode 184 that I had lots of questions about energy. There's a reason for that. Generating electricity is crucial to our society, and the ways we generate that energy often intersect with how we use public land. Thanks to listener Casey Martin for bringing this story to my attention. An energy company has received a permit from the federal government to study the possibility of installing a pumped storage hydropower plant in Colorado's Unaweep Canyon. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently granted the permit to Excel Energy, and the company now has exclusive rights to study the site without competition from other energy developers. The proposed project would include building a 96-foot dam on the mesa above the canyon to create a 5,912-acre-foot reservoir, according to the Colorado Sun. A 4,900-foot pipeline with a 22-foot diameter would drop water to an identically-sized reservoir on the canyon floor created by a 73-foot dam. The tumbling water would pass through turbines that would generate 800 megawatts of energy. I know what you're thinking. Great Scott, that's a lot of energy. That's the power of love. That might sound simple enough, but there's a problem. The plant has to pump water back to the top of the reservoir, which uses more energy than the plant generates. Excel Energy says the plant is still useful because it can generate clean energy at night when wind turbines and solar panels don't produce as much. But Uniweep Canyon residents aren't so sure this is a good idea. Some would be forced to leave their homes and properties if the project is allowed to move forward, and others just don't like the idea of putting a power plant on one of the coolest geologic features in the West. Uniweep Canyon is the only canyon in the world that has creeks flowing out of opposite ends. The East Creek and the West Creek are separated by the Uniweep Divide, and scientists still aren't quite sure how the divide formed. Hiking, mountain biking, and some of the best granite climbing outside Yosemite can be found in Uniweep Canyon, 
according to the Grand Junction Tourist website. Xcel Energy says Uniweep Canyon is the only location in the state suitable for this kind of hydroelectric power plant, but it would destroy this unique geological phenomenon along with the homes and properties in the area. Which brings up the classic question, is it worth it? Moving on to the Bear Desk. The New Jersey Fish and Game Council voted last week to approve an emergency request from Governor Phil Murphy to reinstate a black bear hunt later this year. The state had banned bear hunting on state property in 2018 and banned all bear hunting in 2020. However, the black bear population has grown so large that human-bear conflicts increased 237% between 2021 and 2022, and wildlife managers believe a bear hunt can help control the population. Governor Murphy said that while he is still, quote, committed to ending the bear hunt, the data demands that we act now to prevent tragic bear-human interactions. Bear hunting will resume in the state between December 5th and the 10th of this year, and the Fish and Game Council voted to offer 11,000 bear permits to properly licensed hunters. Hunters may only use shotguns and muzzleloaders, and only zones 1 through 5 will be open to bear hunting. In addition, there is now a strict prohibition on the taking of cubs under 75 pounds, as well as the taking of adults traveling with cubs below 75 pounds. Hunters also may not attempt to take a bear or have a loaded weapon within 300 feet of a baited area. Now, I will say, trying to mitigate bear conflict with a hunting season is somewhat controversial. The question will be, if this tag were to be wildly successful, this hunt to be wildly successful with the maximum allowable removal of bears of 11,000, will that drop in population reduce the bear conflict? I also think it's very interesting here that the governor says he's still committed to ending the bear hunt, but the data demands that we act now to prevent tragic bear-human interactions, which raises the question, does the governor know how bears operate? Does the governor think that we can just fight bears right now and later come to some sort of a bear armistice down the road when we prove that, you know, we're dominant beings out there in the woods? I don't know. New Jersey, good luck. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, please write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. You know, I appreciate it. And also, it may be that you're experiencing extreme cold, just as I am here in Bozeman, Montana. There's something you can do about that. You can grab a chainsaw, cut up a bunch of firewood, get yourself all warm and toasty for the holiday season. Go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. You can get someone a great gift that actually has a purpose. They'll get you set up with what you need and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I. 
venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.